Today we're going to start a series uh, um, in the letter to the Colossians, and then we're going to focus in on what I think is one of the key arguments that Paul is making in this letter. Um, as you know, this is Spark, so we're going to do a little bit of history, we're going to do a little bit of context, and try to get a little bit of an understanding of what's going on. Remember, Christianity starts um, somewhere around the third decade of the first millennium, depending upon your chronology. Jesus is crucified, I'm going to argue, around 30 AD, uh, CE, Common Era. Uh, Some people still say 33. It kind of depends on your chronology and all that kind of stuff. And eventually, not eventually, very, very quickly, this movement of Jesus begins to spread all throughout um, what is known as Judea at that particular time. But it is quickly advancing outside of the Jewish community, uh, which means that it's going to the Gentile community, which means it's going to people who do not have and do not understand Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, uh, Proverbs. They don't have that as their base and their foundation. And so because of this, the movement of Jesus, which is primarily about loving God and loving your neighbor and a transformational view of humanity reaches Gentiles who don't have the base, and they go, this is really amazing, this is really wonderful and awesome, but we're, we're, we're not as grounded, we're not as founded as maybe the original followers of Jesus were, who had Genesis memorized, Leviticus memorized, just like all of you, memorized, you know it exactly to the T, when you're supposed to slaughter the goat and who, what animals you're not supposed to, never mind. So you know all of this, you have this at your foundation, but Gentiles don't have it in the same particular way. And so what happens is um, a gentleman by the name of Paul starts to get word and starts to plant churches. He becomes a Christian. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And then he starts hearing all of these stories about people becoming followers of Jesus. And this is fantastic. But in addition to hearing about all of these people becoming followers of Jesus, he's also hearing problems. He's like the first uh, church spiritual HR director. He is hearing all of the things that the early church is doing, and he's going, wait, 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 you're doing what? And at some particular points, he's like, well, why are you doing that? Not even the pagans do that. You guys are behaving so poorly and so badly. So we have in your Bible, in this thing that we call a sacred text, basically the HR referendum on these early churches. What are you doing? Stop. Stop doing that. That's not what you're supposed to do. That's not what this Jesus movement is about. And in your, le- in your Bible, you have multiple letters of Paul making arguments for the different kind of life that you're supposed to live. And so Colossians is one of those letters. Colossians is one of those pieces of writings that have been passed down to us over the ages to give us a glimpse into what was the early church's thinking What was the early church's rationale? What was the early church's moral logic on how this Jesus movement was to spread into the world? By the way, if you are here and you are not Jewish, this applies to you specifically. Because many of us who did not have the same kind of Jewish education and upbringing that the first followers of Jesus did... We also need to be remediated and to be reminded and to be told, essentially, this is what it looks like. This is what it means. And when we say love God and love your neighbor, and when we talk about, you know, no malice and no slander and no sexual immorality, this is what we're talking about. And that's totally fine because we didn't know, and that's okay. So that's what this letter is. It's one of those letters. Now, that's a gross oversimplification, but it gives you a little bit of a sense. Now, 
just to give you a little bit of a sense of geography, there's Turkey and Greece, and the city of Colossae is right there. Can you see it? Yeah? Did the video do well? And here we're going to zoom in a little bit further. You can see all the agricultural land. You'll see some uh, white up at the top there. And there it is. That mound. Do you see that mound right there? That is the city of Colossae. It's still underground to this day. And as I was uh, taking a look at this, apparently uh, some university got some funding and it looks like they're going to actually start digging there sometime soon. So we may actually have some more archaeological evidence. Here's another map to give you a little bit of an idea. Uh, Denizli right there is approximately the location that's the modern city in Turkey where you can go. And let's zoom in just a little bit to give you a little bit of a sense of this particular location. Off to your right, you see Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. These are cities that are really important to the biblical text. There is a letter to the Laodiceans uh, in, that we don't have in our Bible. And in addition, a reference to the Church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. So this is a location that was very well populated. There's a river valley that runs through it. Ephesus is right there, Priene, Miletus, Didyma. These are all biblical sites. And this is one of those areas, the pagan area, non-Jewish area that was beginning to become followers of Jesus. And Paul is hearing about sometimes traveling to and writing letters to people like this. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a sense, this is the city of Hierapolis. There's this amazing hot water spring because of the geology on the fault line there. And this um, calcium carbonate did water comes up out of the ground. And when it cools, the water can't hold the minerals in the same way. And so it deposits it right out here. And of course, as you can imagine, humans like to turn it into a commercial enterprise. So you can actually go to a hotel there and swim in the water, the warm waters. It's really amazing. Some people call it the cotton mountain because of how it looks. The reason why that's important will come into play in the book of Revelation and the story that's there, but that's not for today. That's for later. Right now, we're just going to focus on this particular location, Colossae. But the reason why all of that is important is because Colossae is in the midst of all of those other Roman colonies, all of those other cities. They're dealing with all sorts of strange and peculiar problems, one of them being mystical polytheism. As you know, many of you have studied Greek mythology, and yes, I'm going to mention Hellenism. Maya, Maya has this bingo card. It's like, how many times is Kevin going to mention Hellenism in his talk? There's one. There it is. The cent- that's the center dot right there of bingo. Uh, Hellenism plays a big part Greek culture, Roman culture. So there's lots of gods, goddesses, and religion is all over the place. You see this all throughout your text. You're also going to see um, Paul mentioning in Colossians philosophy and empty deceit, which I will tell you gives me pause because I love philosophy. Remember Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Remember those morons? Yes, those people I love to study. And yes, you do need to see Princess Bride if you haven't. Thank you, crew group, for having a movie night. So now you're well-educated. So philosophy and empty deceit, he's going to say that's a problem. What's interesting and, and noteworthy is that when he says philosophy, he's talking about a very specific kind of teaching in the ancient world. Fascinatingly enough, Paul is going to address in this letter literalism and legalism. Literalism and legalism become part of the focus of this letter as well. And then, of course, there's a Roman Empire and culture codes. In the letter to Colossians are going to be things like, wives, obey your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Yeah, amen. Yes. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Husbands, love your wives as is fitting to the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Yeah, yeah. oh, sorry, I skipped right over the husband's part, right. But you're exactly right. What's going on in the household codes is going to come in the context 
of the full argument of the disruption of all these other things, polytheism, philosophy, literalism, and legalism. And the problem, of course, with, uh, shall we say, um, religious folks who like to extract those verses out of the letter's context is that they're missing the full thrust of the argument that Paul is doing. But nonetheless, those are in there. And when we get to those and when we read about what is happening in there, I think you'll discover that something is really, truly um, radical and subversive going on in those texts. In addition, there's rampant immorality. There's malice, wrath, tribalism, sexual immorality, and all that kind of stuff. And so, again, Christianity moves out into the pagan world. People who do not have a Jewish foundation, do not have a foundation in the, what we call the Old Testament, in that story, are coming to know Jesus, but they don't have all of the foundation, and so they've got all of this stuff going on. And Paul is writing to them to say, there's a different way. And there's a different kind of life that we are attempting to try to advance into this world. If I may be so bold to sum up the entirety of Paul's argument in this letter, it is simply this. Christ is all and is in all. That is it. That is the solution, the answer, uh, the HR reprimand, the whatever you want to call it. This is the thing that Paul is essentially going to say. And if you miss this one point, everything else doesn't make sense. Everything else can be extracted out of its context and used as a religious cudgel to tell people what to do and what not to do. Because the primary, the fundamental thrust of what's going on in this letter, in addition to other letters, is that Christ is all and is in all. And the focus of who and what Christ is and the location of Christ is the grounding point and identity for everything else. And if you try to understand everything else without understanding this, you are going to miss it, which is what many of us do because you have verses in your Bible. So let's go to this verse and let me read this verse. And this is the verse that I really want to drive home. Verses were not in the original letter. (laughs) Uh, Dear Colossians, I, I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse two. Uh, so does, right. You don't write letters like that. You write letters comprehensively and fully and completely. So your Bibles have verses. The original letters did not have verses. They are reading the full context of the letter, which is something that we should probably do, but we don't have time for that because you're going to go home immediately after this and read it all to yourself, aren't you? So uh, let me give you a brief outline. Thanks be to God, Christ creation poem creed, which we're going to spend some time on right here. And then we're going to do a, an examination of Christ and creation for one purpose, to present everyone mature in Christ. This is the driving theme. This is the goal. That is the aim. Again, that is the opening foundation of the chapter. Then you can go into, watch out for people who are trying to deceive you. Uh, why do you submit to all these regulations? And again, each one of these lines goes back to, because we're trying to present you mature in who Christ is. That's the argument. Set your minds on things above. Yeah, don't be distracted by the empty philosophy and the malice and the deceit and the things that are happening. Why? Because Christ is all and is in all. Put to death, therefore, whatever is in you, all of this earthly stuff where there's malice and slander and sexual immorality, those things. And again, if you extract that out of the letter, these become moralisms. They become a list of do's and don'ts. If you're a good Christian, then you would do this. And if you're a good Christian, you wouldn't do that. 
again, that might be an end result of what it means to be a Christian, but the primary reason is you want to get rid of all the things that are in you that are earthly because what is most fundamental is who Christ is. That's the argument. Clothe yourself with love because that is what a person who is in Christ and who is surrounded by Christ does. And then we get to, of course, the household codes. And if you read those carefully, and you know, that's in chapter four, so we'll, we'll wait for it for later. Again, if you read those carefully, there are these linguistic qualifiers because the ancient Romans already established how women should act in a marriage, how men should act in a marriage, how children should act in a parenting group, and how slaves should act in this particular economy. The Romans already established that. So we don't need to tell women to submit to their husbands because you are property. Rome has already established this. What you do need to tell them is that if you have become a Christian, the way in which you live into this particular culture could radically transform what it means to you, what it means to Rome, what it means to the entire world. And if it changes the meaning structure, it could actually change the social structure. And so what he's doing there is grounding this argument in who Christ is and then weaving it in to all these other behaviors. And again, that's the key thing. There's a couple of fun things. Um, Onesimus is mentioned for those of you who know the book of Philemon or letter to Philemon may very well be that the book of Philemon or the letter of Philemon is in our Bible because of the letter of Colossians. I thought this was a lot of fun. There's a guy by the name of Jesus who is called Justice. And I didn't know, Christine Omer, that you named your son Jesus. I had no idea. I had no clue. So justice is actually Jesus. Jesus is known as justice. So that was kind of fun. There's also a reference to the letter of Laodiceans. Paul actually says, hey, that letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans, you read that one. And when you're done with this letter, you send it on to them. Make sure you do a little trade and a little swap, which is a kind of a fun scholarly note because we know that Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans that we don't have. I'm kind of curious what he wrote to them now. I'll never know. And then, of course, Luke is mentioned in there. Okay, so that's a little bit of the brief outline of the letter. You could read it in about 20 minutes, 15, 20. It's a very short letter. It's compact. It is highly concentrated. And again, if you don't take anything else, take this one thing. Christ is in all and is all. Everything else will make sense if you understand that one point. What is one of the end results? Well, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat in their book, Colossians Remixed, Subverting the Empire, is a pretty astonishing analysis of our current culture. Uh, at that time that they were writing, it was like postmodernism and modernism, this weird mix. And they were analyzing the American empire in light of Colossians. Their fundamental argument, though, at the very beginning, I think, is worthy to consider. The epistle to the Colossians, we are arguing, was an explosive and subversive tract in the context of the Roman Empire. And it can and ought to function in an analogous way in the imperial realities of our time. This letter proclaimed an alternative vision of reality, animating a way of life, that was subversive to the ethos of the Roman Empire. Catch what they're saying. Paul is writing a letter to the Colossians to 
give them a completely different vision of reality. Because the reality that they're living in is Roman Empire, Hellenism, household codes, these kinds of things. And Paul elevates their imagination to say, there's actually a completely different reality. And if you can get on board with, absorb, believe in, trust in that alternative reality, that will subvert which is a really powerful empire overthrowing term to say that empire is not ultimate reality, is not ultimate truth. If we can believe in this ultimate alternative vision, that empire will be thrown away. Footnote, some would argue that for many Christians this actually happened. The Roman Empire was subverted. And it became something very, very different as a result. And one of the primary questions that emerges out of this is the question, how do you overthrow an empire, an oppressive empire? Have you ever thought about that? I know this is, this is your bedtime. This is your bedtime thinking. So how do I overthrow an oppressive empire? Step one. Ask the question, how do I overthrow an oppressive empire? Right. This is not something that we think about on a regular basis. But it is the primary, one of the primary thrusts. And for those of us who think and consider and find analogs in our modern day of oppressive empires, there might be some clues in this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, explaining each and every line. This is something that can be done. It's really amazing. Like I said, it's very compact and contrast, uh, concentrated. What I'd like to do is point out what I think is a main thrust of an argument in the opening chapter in chapter one. And here's the opening argument. The first thing, because Christ is all and in all, there is this poem starting in verse 15. After Paul says he thanks uh, God for you and is praying for you and is encouraged by you, he moves into this poem, this creed, which we believe is one of the earliest Christian creeds. And you'll find this in Philippians and, and Colossians and other places as well. And read carefully what he says here. He, meaning Christ, and Christ being a kind of a truncated term to mean Jesus, but he's using the term Christ to uh, infuse the whole idea with salvation, crucifixion, resurrection, the entirety of the thing. Read this. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God looks like? Do you want to know what God sounds like? Do you want to know what God feels like? Do you want to know the character and the nature of God? Look at Christ. And by the way, this has been a theme throughout Spark for a long, long time. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. This is the whole point. The firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn doesn't mean like born first. This is, uh, there, there are some Christian sects or cults, depending upon what you like to categorize them, to believe that Jesus was like the first thing created. Firstborn over all creation is a colloquial term to mean the one who has predominant authority. That's what firstborn means, to have authority over. The firstborn of all creation. For in him, in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Wait, wait a second, wait a second. Thrones. Who's that referring to? Caesar. Dominions. Roman Empire. Rulers. Powers. Do you see what he's saying here? These people that function as if this is reality, they're not. 
really ultimate reality. All things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, all things have been created by him and through him. That is a position of authority, a position of power, a position of control, a position of sovereignty. Rome has established itself as that power. And Paul is saying, ah, 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 not so fast. There's a greater power and a greater authority rooted in our creation story. And that creation story, by the way, is not just Genesis 1 where in, when God began to create in the beginning. Our creation story begins actually with Jesus. And this is a theme that you'll see also in the Gospel of John and other places as well. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. Okay, so just as Jesus, as Christ is the Lord of all the rulers and powers and authorities and dominions, so Christ is also the head of the church. So all of you, you Colossians who are behaving poorly and badly, I'm going to start there. We know from our theology that Jesus is the head of our creation, including all the dominions and powers and rulers and authorities. And if that happens to be true, how much more is Jesus over the church? Universal, localized. He is the beginning of firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Man, is that packed. We could spend the rest of the year just on that verse. What did the crucifixion do? How did it subvert the Roman authority? What is the reconciliation process by which Jesus is bringing all of those things? If Rome is establishing itself as the ultimate power and ultimate authority, it is separating itself from the lordship of Jesus. But this Christ is bringing and reconciling all things back under him. So if you feel like things are out of control in this world, somebody's at work. This is what Paul is saying. If you think some people have taken it upon themselves to completely jettison any spiritual grounding, any sense of any sense at all, and have gone, I almost cursed there, gone really crazy. There's somebody at work trying to bring it all back together. So this is the fundamental argument. So there's two main sections here, the cosmic and the local. And what ties it all together is that in Christ, the cosmic, the local, the powers, everything, Jesus is bringing it all back together. And that, my friends, forms a, a primary, a principal foundation for the argument that Paul is making, the spiritual, moral, social, political argument that is being made. If you look out into whatever world you live in and think that there are powers and authorities and rulers and dominions that are acting inappropriately, that are abusing their power and position, that are subverting what is supposed to be good and right and true moral principles of this world, you would be correct. And this letter is to encourage you to say that there is somebody at work bringing it all together, trying to reconcile all things back to their original design, back to Genesis 1, 
when God separated the light from the darkness and put them in the right places, separated the waters and put them in the right places, separated the animals, the birds, and the fish, put them in their right places, and put everything exactly the way it was supposed to be. There is somebody who is doing that right here, right now, Colossians. That is Christ. Now, that's argument. That's part one of the argument. Here's part two of the argument that Paul is making. Many years ago, and please forgive me if I've told this story before, I received one of the greatest pieces of parenting advice I had ever heard. I watched a little child run to his father in tears. She had done something really wrong. I think it was lying. She was being deceitful. Somehow word got around and her father found out, incredibly disappointed. She knew it was wrong. And she was kind of afraid as to what was going to happen, what kind of punishment was going to ensue. In my mind, as I was watching this kind of unfold, this happened very quickly, I was thinking, okay, here it comes. Why did you do that? What is wrong with you? How could you? Don't you know that's bad? That's what I'm thinking. This is the kind of parenting that I have seen, that I've experienced. Shame, guilt, pointing out the delinquency. This father got down on his knees, grabbed his daughter's head, looked her straight in the eyes, and asked this one question. Whose daughter are you? What is your last name? Who do you belong to? Who are we? What kind of family are we? And who are you? Who do you belong to? And with tears streaming down her face, she said, I'm your daughter, daddy. I'm your daughter. He said, that's right. That's who you are. And don't you ever forget that's who you are. Wait, wait, wait. Where's the condemnation of the behavior? Where is the shame and the punishment for how she acted? Which she knew she deserved and this father knew that she deserved. No. Whose daughter are you? Who do you belong to? And I watched them embrace, and you could just tell she knew. She knew that she was still in trouble. But the assurance that this father gave to her daughter was, I mean, has stuck with me to this day. Because I think what this father exemplified in that particular moment is that behavior is determined a large, in large part by what you believe about yourself and to whom do you belong. This is a big piece of our identity and our behavior. And if you believe that you belong to a family that is good and righteous and true and loving and fully attached and these kinds of things, then that in many ways affects your behavior. And that message has just stuck with me to constantly affirm identity, belonging, intimacy. And out of those things comes the behavioral modification. And here, after part one of Paul arguing who Christ is, he gets to part two. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. I became its minister according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This is his commission and call as a minister. The mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages 
and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Part one, who is Christ? All things, creator, master, sovereign authority. Part two, that Christ is in you, my friends. Your identity, who you are, what family you belong to, consider that. That is what is in you. We're going to get to the household codes and the don't screw up kind of thing, but what he starts with is grabbing your head so gently, looking into your eyes and saying, Whose daughter are you? To whom do you belong? This theme actually explodes in this letter. So first, this is the mystery, the glorious mystery, which is Christ in you. This is what you need to know and what you need to believe. Then, but the second thing is in verse, chapter 2, verse 9, for in him, which is Christ, again, this is part of the whole argument, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So just like Christ was in you, this God is in Christ. You start to see that there's multiple layers of this identity. Later in Colossians chapter 3, though, he so sets your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Okay, so that, that's the whole Christ. God is in Christ. Christ is in me. You have died, and then he goes on to say, and your life is hidden with Christ, which is in God. So, so there's this wild, crazy mix. He's constantly trying to remind you of who you are and the identity of what it means to be a Christian. This happens in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you, Galatians, resonates with this idea. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Romans 8 also mentions this. If Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. This is a theme, by the way, and we could go through all sorts of different passages. One of them that comes to mind is the tabernacle. For those of you who know, again, the foundation of the Old Testament or the, or the Torah, the Israelites, after they're freed out of uh, Egypt, they go into the desert. Most people call it a wandering. We call it a following because of they didn't move until the pillar of fire and the, the cloud of smoke moved. Nonetheless, they build this tabernacle. And if you're unfamiliar with this ritual, you think, well, God needs a place to live. This is the whole idea of God coming down to earth. And that is definitely true. But there's this really fascinating very small verse that transforms the whole idea in this whole thing. They shall make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in them. The tabernacle in many ways is just a prop. It is a familiar form from the surrounding culture. But what is most important is that, okay, so do that. Build a sanctuary. Build a, but guess what? That's not my home. You are my home, and I'm going to live in you. So, I think we need to illustrate this. Because some of you don't, don't quite get it. Okay, pretend, pretend this is you, okay? Some of you are, are this transparent. So, 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 this is you, okay? This is you. 
what Paul seems to be arguing here is that there's another, there's another reality. By the way, what's in you? I mean, some of you are this empty too. So no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just sorry. Sorry. I take that back. I take that back. I actually don't take it back. So some of you, some of you, what's in here is a whole bunch of stuff and a whole bunch of stuff that means things like, and, and I didn't have time to get all the props, but you can put all your accolades in here. I mean, m- many of you store, you know, your bowling trophies in this box and those medals that you got when you're in high school and those certificates that you got when you're in junior high, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you go, this is, this is, oh, this is my degree. This is my job. This is how much I make. These are my stock options. I mean, <laughs> look, it's, a, it's a heavy box, right? <laughs> Paul is saying, who cares? Because what is most important, if you are a Christian, is that Christ lives in you. So, so, so the things that you thought were important are actually not that important. What's most important is that the creator of the world is in you. All things that hold together are in you. No, you don't get it. You know, because, because, because in in Christ is, and I, I thought it was appropriate to do purple for God. Oh my gosh, the Sharpie. God, Elohim, the creator of the universe, is in Christ. And Christ is in you. There's not a lot of room for all those accolades anymore because that's not what is most fundamental and most true and most important. And if you want to know how to live in this worldview and change and subvert the empire and all that, this is what you first need to understand. But yeah, it's even better than that. Please work. Because Paul says that in addition to God being in Christ and Christ being you, you are also what? Yeah. So the thing that surrounds you, molds you, informs you. Oh, <laughs> sorry. We're not done. <laughs> Why? Because? <laughs> now... We could spend a lot of time, and maybe perhaps we will, talking about what you should or should not be doing with your life as a Christian, what's good and what's bad and what's wrong and what's right. Before we even get there, and in fact, maybe those things are just side notes, results, because what's most important is you recognize your identity Whose daughter are you? What is your identity? And this, my friends, is one of the primary messages of Colossians. God in Christ created the entire world, and that God in Christ lives in you. And as you mature 
and become more and more like Jesus, you become further and further in Christ, who is in God. So this, my friends, this is the opening argument. Because the spiritual truth of who you are and to whom you belong, this is the first and most prominent truth of Paul's moral argument. Recognize, realize, and constantly remember who you are, in whom do you reside, who lives in you. This is the primary argument, what you need to know, what you need to remember. And that entirety of that creative, creative power, authority, before we even get to subverting the Roman Empire, it's in you and you are in it. This week, Q Group um, made some changes and, and we're now doing worship and, and Bible study. It's really beautiful. And Maya introduced me to this song um, entitled Still Making Me by Audrey Asad. And it was, it was one of those songs where I listened to it all week and just wept. Because it feels like this constant reminder that as we're going through life, we get distracted by the things that we should or should not be doing, get distracted by, uh, by the, the, the hurt and the pain, the religious abuse, all, all sorts. Of, I mean, you just go down the list of things that you can remember. But this song is a reminder that there is a reality that's been there this entire time. And when you start to remember that reality, like Paul is attempting to do in Colossians, you are being renewed and remade and recreated constantly. So I've asked Maya and, and Darren to share this with us.
So my friends, uh, how do you overthrow an oppressive empire? You start with the question, who are you? To what family do you belong? That's where we start. And that's where we continue to have to be reminded. And the message here is simple. Who are you? You are someone with whom Christ dwells. That, my friends, is the hope of glory. A couple weeks ago, we talked about our vision and discipleship being one of the core pillars of the vision. We want to see people become more and more like Jesus. And I would simply propose that discipleship is the making and the recreating of us as followers of Jesus. As we learn more about Christ, we learn more about the Christ in us. And as we learn more, may we learn to believe, to trust again. As we come to this time of communion, we are actually symbolically, physically participating in a ceremony that does exactly this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as we sing, you may come, grab the juice, grab the bread, and partake. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, no matter who you are, where you've come from, uh, you are welcome at this table to participate in a ritual that reminds you all of this journey of recognizing Christ in you, the hope of glory. As we sing, please come.